0: from Chico, California. This is the Barbless Fly Fishing Podcast where we discuss NorCal fly fishing, guiding, fisheries science and management, conservation, and more. Know better, fish better. Here's your host, Hogan Brown. This episode of the Barbless Fly Fishing Podcast is brought to you by California Trout. Working throughout the state to ensure we have resilient wild fish thriving in healthy waters for a better California. Support Caltrout's innovative, science-based work by becoming a member or donating today at Caltrout.org.
1: All right, everybody. Hey, welcome to the first podcast under the NorCal label. I'm Hogan Brown. Uh, This is yet to be titled... Um we are probably when this airs in the middle of our titling contest. So uh we're gonna run with the yet to be untitled title. <laughs> uh, my first guest today is a really dear friend of mine and uh someone I've known not for a lot of time, but I, I, I feel akin, kind of a brother from another mother, uh Captain Lucas Bissett from uh Low Tide Charters out in the uh Slidell, Louisiana. Is that how you say that, Lucas?
0: Yes, Slidell Louisiana. Very good. <laughs> yeah.
1: I you know, when you start pronouncing names like outside of California, maybe they, 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 they don't always go how they sound grammatically.
0: Especially. Well and Louisiana is is definitely one of those places where you can mispronounce most of all of it. And <laughs> um and it depends on what city you're in because New Orleans they just apparently took the French dictionary, threw it out the window and then decided to just pronounce anything the way they want it to. And so it's crazy.
1: Yeah, yeah. So it's from, you know, like a total West Coast kid, like I say, New Orleans, is that, that's probably not correct.
0: No, you've got way too many, you got way too many syllables in there. It's just New Orleans. It's just <laughs> okay. New okay. Orleans. <laughs> yeah, that, not New Orleans, because that's like a little too much. New
1: gotcha. 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 All right. So I met Lucas. I'll, I'll tell everybody that's listening how I met Lucas. Um, I got elected about a year and a half ago to the, uh, AFTA board, the American fly fishing tackle association. And, uh, I ran for it assuming I would not be elected cause I'm just a lowly fishing guide here in the state of California. And, uh, I actually got elected mind you. And, uh, so I walk into the board meeting, the first board meeting, I, we were in Denver and, uh, I look around and it is like a who's who of the world of fly fishing from presidents, marketing managers, uh, and I was instantaneously out of my league. And Lucas and me, and Lucas at the time was the lone fly fishing guide on the board. And so I was like, that's my man. And not only that, <laughs> he had an LSU sweatshirt on. I remember, and I, looked, I, I looked past the the fact that he was probably an SEC fan, and I said, at least we can connect on college football. So, uh, me and Lucas have become pretty fast friends since then. All right, so Lucas, um, tell tell our listeners a little bit about what you do. I, I you're kind of like all of us in the fly fishing industry. You you you, uh, you got a lot of arrows in your quiver. Um, so, you know, you're involved with AFTA, Fly Fishing Guide. Um, what are you, what are you up to?
0: Yeah. Um, you know, I, I don't know what it is about being a fly fishing guide, but apparently you don't want to be bored ever. And so you take on as many tasks as you possibly can. And, and I am no exception to that. Um, so yeah, I've been a fly fishing guide here in Louisiana for redfish, uh, almost 10 years now. I'm also uh, the secretary of the board of the American Fly Fishing Trade Association. I'm also the owner-operator of a nonprofit here in Louisiana called Anglers Bettering Louisiana's Estuaries. And we're working on community outreach stuff as well as uh, coastal restoration. And I'm sure there's something else I do in my spare time, but... uh that's pretty much
1: it. <laughs> hey, man. I mean, that's what it's. That's what we do. I, I agree 100%. I don't know anyone in fly fishing that's like, you know, I have one job. <laughs> and that's this all, is all I, I, do. I do. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, I mean, uh, just looking you up is uh, I feel like I know you, but I felt like being the first podcast, I needed to do some pretty serious research. So, you were the Orvis guide of the year in 2017, right? Like, that's a that pretty, is correct. That's yeah, a pretty big honored. deal.
0: Honored to win that for sure. Um, yeah. When I got endorsed in 2012, I made it a personal goal to, uh, to become the Orvis endorsed saltwater guide of the year. And I was able to achieve that That's in awesome. 2017.
1: I actually, I looked up your, your like page on the Orvis endorsed guides and you had, um, 131 reviews and, yep. f- um, 127 of them were five stars. And then four of them were four stars, and I'm not gonna lie, I only only read the four star ones, (laughs) 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 which, and I I was like, I was fear, I was seriously like, like I have friends. I mean, you fish some of the AC fly fishing trips and Anthony's guys, and like a couple of those four star reviews, I was, I was almost obligated to reply because you read the view, and they're like, we had a great day, we caught fish, conditions were poor, but we still caught fish, and it was like, I'm thinking in my mind, I'm like. Well, then give him five stars, dude. You put some salt in this guy's <laughs> game. You ruined his freaking reviews.
0: Right. Luckily, luckily, I have enough now that it averages out to five stars.
1: Totally. You are a five-star average. But as your friend, I'm like, ooh, somebody gave him four stars. I want to read these <laughs> and give him some crap.
0: <laughs> well, the, the first one that I got that was four stars, I felt was deserved. Because that was one of the first trips I took as an endorsed guy. And okay. so. You know, and even there, it said you know the person who gave me that review did say I feel like Lucas will be a great ambassador for Orvis, um, yes. But you know, he is new, so I I'm okay with that one. The yeah. other ones, I was like, ah, you know, everything that I could control, you said was really good, and so it's kind of unfair that the weather wasn't good and you gave me four yeah. stars, yeah. but... Yes, I agree. Oh, no, I I was,
1: I I mean, I was like two beers away from having the courage to pop off. So, I mean, just (laughs) in defense of you, if I had seen that before noon, you know, in the COVID situation here, I may have fired off on the keyboard. So, uh, (laughs) you know, the other thing, oh, yeah, (laughs) yeah, 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 I wouldn't. I mean, I would, but I wouldn't. So don't, I mean, I I get the sentiment
0: and I appreciate it.
1: (laughs) The other thing I was I was looking at your um your bio on the Orvis site, which is longer than the bio actually on your website. Um, mm-hmm. It said you wor- worked seven years for the coastal restoration project with LSU. I, I had yep. I, I didn't now are are you actually and I don't know this I mean are you actually an LSU graduate?
0: No, I actually graduated from the University of South Florida in Tampa.
1: Oh wow! Okay, okay. Now. Yep. I yep, South-
0: got accepted to LSU and University of South Florida, and decided to head that way because my dad was living there at the time.
1: Gotcha, gotcha. Now, did you fish when you were in college down there?
0: You know, I did a whole lot of bass fishing, freshwater bass fishing. Um, yeah, did not yeah. do a lot of saltwater fly fishing. And I now, mean, looking back, I was like, what a waste.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, that's America's game fish, right there. I mean, let's be real. Like, you know, true, true. There's no doubt. So, what'd you the do? Wor- nice. <laughs> what'd you do working <laughs> for the? for them for seven years? I mean, was that a job or was that like an internship or what was that?
0: No, no, it was like a real job. I got paid and everything. Wow. Um, yeah. So, you know, <laughs> I always get made fun of because people tell me that, you know, I've got 40 years of experience but only 20 years on the job. Um, <laughs> yeah. that's, I'm one of those people who's had a lot of different jobs and this LSU job was sort of one in one in many, but I got hired at LSU in 2006. Working for a research their research farm that was there just off campus, and I was doing just like regular farm work, but for research. Gotcha. So I would go out and you know plant seeds and do all kinds of stuff. Very quickly realized that that was probably a bit under my uh, my skill level, and so I applied for a job in the coastal restoration sort of department, if you will, um, doing uh, marsh grass breeding. So. Uh, the the project was uh, tasked with looking for opportunities to create what they call public releases of marsh grass. So, in coastal restoration work here in the state of Louisiana, if you're a like a public um, like grower of plants, or you're going out there and you're doing coastal restoration work, you are um, going to be using grasses typically that you purchased from. Like a public source, so like LSU or or some other opportunity like that, and anytime that you're you're doing this restoration work, you want as much variety in species as you can get, so that if a disease were to hit one specific, you know, uh, strain of of a grass, that these other strains potentially would be disease resistant and they wouldn't die. And so, what LSU and and the project that I was working on, what we were trying to do was to come up with. New public releases of smooth cordgrass, grass specifically, also known as Spartina alterniflora, um, in order to um, diversify the uh, sort of variety of that specific grass that was out in the market for uh, public release. So, Gotcha. That, that was like a really long and boring answer, so I apologize. No, but, no.
1: I mean, w- what that leads me into is, I mean, and I don't know if you would describe yourself this, but you are, you know, in... Coming in contact with Afton, meeting you, one thing that I have become by being associated with you and talking to you is a lot more big picture conservation minded. And you're probably on our board and in the world that I know, probably one of the more passionately educated and active people in conservation. I mean, you're the only fly fishing guide I know that still has a suit that fits you know, that isn't from like his (laughs) 1980 prom that he like wears to Washington. So like, you know, is that kind of where some of this, I mean, kind of talk about what you're doing with the conservation and, and, and it's such a big part of who you are. I know.
0: That's true. Um, you know, and fly fishing is really the, the litmus that I have not litmus. It's a catalyst that I have to give credit to for getting as involved in conservation as I am, because, Being born in the state of Louisiana, I was raised a certain way when it came to sort of the way that I viewed the outdoors. You know, this is called the sportsman's paradise. And in in a sportsman's paradise or, you know, a really prolific area that you can catch or kill pretty much anything you want, anytime you want, (laughs) the lack of respect that comes with that tends to be pretty prolific. And so, you know, the way I was raised is that I never remember thinking about a limit of fish or you know, when you were supposed to stop fishing, like it was just you fished and then you hunted and you know, those, there were rules there and you didn't want to get caught, but there wasn't any sort of conservation ethos that was instilled in me. And it's not that I, you know, I fought my parents or anything like that for it. It's just, it was kind of culturally where it was. And when I got into fly fishing, what I realized is that when you stop focusing on a number and you start focusing on an experience, you tend to look outside of the boat a whole lot more. And the more that I looked outside of the boat, the more that I realized that I wanted to protect everything that I was
2: seeing.
1: Yeah. And so, uh, that's that right there. That statement is about as profound as I've ever heard. I mean, that that's, <laughs> that's pretty damn good, dude. That is, well,
0: that's, that's what happened. I mean, it, it, it really is. It it's what changed my life as, the, as far as what I focused on and what I saw as important. And so from that moment forward, I've done everything in my power to protect the state of Louisiana's marshes and hell, even federal fisheries and other things that I work on simply because, you know, my my mantra is that we did not inherit, you know, our our environment from our ancestors. We're borrowing it from our children. And that's what drives me, you know, every day to when I wake up to when I go to bed. And I just felt like I couldn't look my son in the, in the eyes and tell him that I didn't do everything in my power to make sure that it was as good for him and his kids as it was for me and so
1: yeah man that's, and that's i mean there's I no one there's no i mean a lot of people toe the line or say the words but i mean it, it, you are the fly fishing guide i know that toes the line i mean you're the guy i mean the the question you, you do i mean let's i am after covid does the suit still fit though i mean like I'm, no
0: hell no yeah and that's right actually what like, i was gonna say is <laughs> i actually have three different suits it just depends on how much i eat before i go to dc and so <laughs> I've got, I've got like my ideal body weight suit. I've got the, well, not looking too great suit. And I got the morbidly obese suit. So I, I keep, I keep all of those uh, on hand and ready to go. And so, uh, yeah, I actually have more than one suit simply based on how many cookies I had before I go to DC. That, so.
1: that dude, that, you know, that's, that's a great way to look at it. Cause it, after this COVID <laughs> thing, I was, I was, I don't know, I was scrolling through that, the, Some sort of social media, Facebook, Instagram, something, and I I came across like somebody's CrossFit picture or something like this, and like (laughs) I'm like, dude, I'm not like, I'm just hoping my clothes fit after this thing. Like that, that's like my goal. Like I want to put on a pair of pants whenever this is over and be like, sweet, they still fit, you know, and not have to go buy all new clothes.
0: Hundred percent. Yeah, I at this point, my life goals are to be able to make it up the stairs. (laughs) <laughs> to the office that we have upstairs to see my wife because she's working from home as well now yeah and it's getting to a point there where i was scared i wasn't going to make it so <laughs> yes uh, you, you, you know. got to
1: put one of those little things that you see now around like public buildings like a defibrillator on the side of the wall like halfway I up. an
2: aed <laughs> yeah yes, exactly an yeah. AED. yeah absolutely count the stairs
1: put <laughs> it in the middle <laughs> <laughs>
0: clear <laughs> no
1: doubt so one of the reasons when i was when i was thinking about guides that i wanted to have on my show and an interview and one of the the things too when we look specifically at your guiding and not just all the conservation work is you are a native born louisiana fly fishing guide and if there is a fishery that i can think of in the last 10 years that has literally exploded onto I would say worldwide fly fishing awareness. It is the winter fall fishery that you have there, right there in the backyard for the trophy redfish. Um, I mean, I was thinking about it and I just typed in, you know, Louisiana redfish fly fishing guides. And I think I stopped at like eight Google pages and there was hosted trips. There was fly fishing. I mean, it was, and I could have kept going, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. And you yeah. have and one interesting thing that I want to kind of talk to you about and kind of why I thought of it is you are a local guy who has seen his backyard literally explode to the point where like there's probably, i, I and correct me if I'm wrong, more migratory guides that come there to guide than maybe even local Louisiana-born guides. And oh, 100%. And what does that look like? I mean, to kind of tell our listeners the story because it, it, it's really interesting when we look at a, a fishery that was, for the most part, completely unknown. You know, I mean, I come to redfishing, I caught my first redfish probably 15 years ago in Georgetown, South Carolina, or yeah, Georgetown, South Carolina, about south of um, Myrtle Beach. And I fell in love with them. I thought it was I would, when I did that, I said, I have absolutely no interest in bonefish from now on. And <laughs> I started hosting trips to Corpus Christi. Um, I started traveling around, you know, as a guide and taking clients red fishing because it was flat saltwater fishing you could do within the continental U.S. <laughs> by getting on a Southwest flight and not spending a whole lot of money. Um, but when I was trying to sell these trips, most people didn't even know what a redfish was you know, like out in California. And now it's, I bet there's not a fly shop in California that doesn't host a trip to Northern Orleans to fish for redfish. So w- what happened since you lived it?
0: Um, well, I mean, you know, the, one of the reasons, one of the main reasons why Louisiana has more migratory guides than they do native guides is that Louisiana is a fly fishing destination. It's not a fly fishing state. And so, You know, we're not born here thinking about fly fishing for redfish. It's not even on our radar. Really? And so you just, yeah, not even close. I mean, it's just not even something that I've ever even thought of. I mean, I take people periodically who are from here in the state who have caught thousands and thousands and thousands of redfish who never, ever would have considered picking up a fly or a fly rod if it wouldn't have been for, say, like the local Orvis in Baton Rouge that we have, you know, the corporate store.
1: So, so the, the red fishing, fishing, down there, has always been part of the culture. It's just not absolutely people didn't target just them not with fly flies. Fishing. Gotcha. No. Okay.
0: No. Um, and you know, redfish have a have a pretty interesting history in the state. And this is a bit of a sidebar, and so I won't. Oh no! A bunch of time. Let's on, hear it. But well, I mean, you know, Louisiana has always been, as I said before, an extremely prolific fishery, and redfish were no exception. And but typically in the past, you know, say 30, 40 years ago people weren't targeting redfish, you know, it was, it was considered a trash fish by most folks. You know, most people were trying to catch the, uh, the ever loved speckled trout or spotted sea trout, which is, you know, basically the, the fish of Louisiana, you know, everybody wants to catch a a spotted sea trout. Um, and so, you know, as the story goes, and this is a pretty famous story now is that, you know, Paul Perdom, a famous chef here in Louisiana created the black and redfish dish and took what was considered at the time a trash fish and made a delicacy out of it. And so when that took place, you saw this rapid increase of commercial fishing and you know basically overharvest of, of a fishery, as we tend to do. Yeah. And, um, and so then they put in uh, protections for those redfish, uh, making it illegal to use gill nets, making it illegal to commercially harvest them except with a rod and reel, and even even rod and reel commercial fishing is extremely limited in the state. And so you saw the fishery bounce back, as they have the ability to do if we get out of their way. Yeah. And so that's what's made Louisiana, you know, again, you know, sort of the redfish capital of the world, because where the Mississippi River meets the Gulf of Mexico, anytime you have a confluence of two bodies of water like that, especially fresh and salt, you tend to see some really incredible things. And the delta of the Mississippi River, being that it's, you know, the largest river in this country, it created some pretty impressive nursery areas and then also, you know, these like nutrient-rich spots that were bringing in bait fish and other things from the Gulf of Mexico. And so, you know, the redfish bounced back very quickly and now they're just, you know, more than you could probably even count. And so um, that lent itself to people starting to come here to to catch redfish. And, you know, Louisiana has got the rare opportunity of catching those bull-sized redfish, you know, anything over 27 to 30 inches pretty much all all year round but when they come into spawn in late august and stay basically through the rest of the winter there's just not many opportunities out there in any other states to catch large redfish on the flats that you can sight fish to in shallow clean water like you do in the fall and winter of louisiana so it just it was a recipe for for you know an explosion at some point now it took a little while Because you had guys 25, 30 years ago who were fly fishing for redfish, but they weren't really advertising it. And then about 15 or 20 years ago, you know, you started to see a little bit of advertisement. And then about 10 years ago, you saw a real push towards, um, you know, everyone writing articles and making videos. And so it just, it just exploded onto the scene of the fly fishing sort of radar. And now... Um, Any given winter out of the launch that I use, you're looking at probably almost 100 guides. Whereas when I got my license in 2011, there were three guys who were doing it full time in the state of Louisiana, maybe maybe four or five out of the actual ramp that I use. And so over those 10 years, you've just seen just massive influx. And that's just one launch. Yeah. If you were to go down to Venice, you know, where the actual mouth of the river, it's probably another hundred, you know, or close to it. And, and so it's
1: how many of those but, guys are actually? I mean, where are those guys coming from?
0: They're from all over, man. I mean, we've seen them from Florida, Texas, Alabama, the Carolinas, Montana. I've uh, seen West Virginia, Colorado. Wow. Uh, Texas for sure. If I didn't mention that. Um,
1: I, you know, I it's, guess it's, it would make sense because for a lot of those guys, it's an off season fishery, right?
0: Yeah, like, absolutely. And that's yeah. how it, and that's how the popularity got created is that you had tarpon guides from Florida we were looking for something to do in the winter and we're just basically selling trips while they were on the boat in the summer catching tarpon. And so they were like, Hey, you want to come and do something really cool in Louisiana? You know, you need to come between October and December. And so that's basically how it got started is that those guys were looking to kind of, you know, create something during their shoulder season, which they did. Yeah. And then, um, you know, the popularity has just gotten ever increasing. And, you know, the funny thing about fly fishing is you have these sort of waves, of excitement and so probably about you know 10 years ago you had these sort kind of initial wave and then people kind of trickled in and so guys were able to kind of make a living through the winter and then maybe six or seven years ago you had this sort of like secondary wave and then people were able to really start making a living and it was able to support more and more folks and then about five years ago four years ago you had this sort of third wave And that seems to have been like the biggest wave at the time was just this massive influx of people coming in thinking that you could only fish October through December. And so anybody and their dog who wanted to be a guide in the state of Louisiana in those three months basically could be because there were so many trips that the people who were doing it full time just couldn't take them all. And so you started to see this influx of people coming in. And now I think what's happening is that that's starting to wane a bit because people have been having you know, slightly less desirable uh experiences, especially in the winter because we've had this, you know, last four or five years of just garbage weather in the wintertime with cold fronts moving through and a lot of wind and clouds. And so people are starting to kind of get more of an actual wintertime experience in Louisiana. Yeah. And um it's just made it tough for sight fishing. And so I think we're starting to see a bit of that excitement wane now um, because people are just aren't having the experience that they were sold on because they're still seeing videos from 10 years ago
1: well, you know, and, or eight uh, years
0: ago go, or five years ago.
1: When I, when I look back on the, the red fishing I've done, I mean, it was spring and summer, you know, I mean, I, I think about going to the South in the winter and it's like, a, I mean, statistically the chances of you hitting good weather, it's like, you know, not really good on a normal winter. Not from, great. Yeah. You know, and I remember going in the spring and summer and I mean, it's, yeah, it's hot, but heck, we're in California. You know, 100, 100 degrees here ain't nothing. So, and it's consistent and you get plenty of shots at fish and maybe you don't get the big ones, but, you know, you get a well, lot and, of shots. Well,
0: and the guys who live here year-round are, are starting to really dial in on that summertime fisher, you know, and, yeah. and starting to realize that as far as like the final frontier goes, you know, summertime in Louisiana is what wintertime used to be And yeah. that you're not seeing any other boats. You know, everybody kind of goes away as far as the migratory folks, they're going back to their respective fisheries. And so you get, you get Louisiana to yourself again. And so the guys who are, who are native or who are, are local, you know, staying here year round, I've really dialed in the, the summertime experience. And so you're getting this totally different opportunity now. And yes, it's hot and, and, you know, there's horse flies at times and other things, but the weather is so consistent that you can almost mark your calendar based on, okay, it's going to be hot and calm in the morning, the humidity, and then it's going to, you know, kind of go through that until about one or two o'clock, thunderstorms going to pop up. It's going to rain. Like you're going yeah. to run off the yeah, water. Yeah, that's exactly.
1: Fire. I mean, that is like, I remember going down to like Corpus Christi and like, I could plan on like Lone Star and oysters and a half shell at the oyster bar by like two 30, you know what <laughs> I mean? It was like, yeah, we storms were, run you off. Yeah, yeah, you're gonna bang fish in the morning, and it's gonna get hot, and that humidity is gonna build, and you know you're bellied up to the oyster bar by two o'clock, and you know get up early the next day and do it again, all pickled and ready to go. So that's it. Yeah, that's it. Now, it, I mean, you talk about it. Is it, we've seen fisheries in California do similar, but not like that, man. I mean, the growth from three guides to a hundred at one ramp is, I mean can the fishery sustain that? Is it a sustainable fishery with that level of guides on it? I mean, a hundred, I mean, I think of a hundred boats going out of a boat ramp and I, I like want to crawl under the desk, you know? It's,
0: right. And I mean, don't get me wrong. It's rarely that you're going to see all hundred at one time.
1: I oh, mean, totally. But I mean, even if it's uh, half that, even if you're right. you know exaggerating by 50%, that's still insane.
0: Right. And, and I mean, there are definitely days that I've seen almost 50 skiffs launch. So it, it does, it does happen. Um, Uh, and there are, and there are between, you know, a a 10 or 15 mile radius of, of boat launches. Those other 50 are somewhere in there, you know? So there is, there is typically, you know, around a hundred folks most likely give or take. Um, but you know, sustainable in the, in the, in the Louisiana that I know, no, absolutely not. You know, one of the things that made Louisiana special, um, you know, in the, in the past was that it was a beginner saltwater fisher.
2: Absolutely.
0: Like you, you had, you know, foolish fish who were hungry, who didn't see any pressure. And so they were coming to the boat. If you use the trolling motor, like there was. Well, that's a, how it I thought of when
1: I was redfishing, I mean, that's how I, like I, I was said in the beginning, like losing interest in bone. It's like, I remember going out and hitting literally redfish on the head with my fly because my cast was so crappy and they turn around and eat it. Like, yep. I mean, it, it, why would you fly to Christmas Island to have to like belly crawl across the sand to, f- you know, <laughs> catch a bonefish when you know it just? I, I told. That's how I always sold it to people. Is I was, you know, I had clients that were like, "Yeah, I want to go down and do this and this and this." I'm like, "Well, you better go red fishing first. You know, get your chops." So
0: well, and and that's you know there are times that that does still exist. You know, again, the spring and the summer you tend to have a little bit more opportunity uh, the fish tend to be a little less pressured, but nowadays Mm -hmm. in the winter, I mean, when I first started guiding, if I went to a spot, I could say with all the confidence in the world that the last person to fish that spot was me three days ago. Now I couldn't tell you if somebody fished it three minutes ago. And, and what's happening is that, you know, there's, there's a, a pretty vast expanse of marsh, obviously. Yeah. Um, but there's only so much of that marsh that's going to fish on a regular basis. And then that even gets narrower whenever you add weather into it. So if the wind's blowing really hard out of a certain direction, that's going to limit where you can go. And so you're just getting this, you know, this sort of inundation of people on these same spots over and over. And I mean, fish aren't dumb, you know, they, they get to where they understand what pressure feels like. And so it changes the way that they act. And one of the things that, you know, is, is difficult for Louisiana as a state is that while I see the beauty in it and a lot of other people do too, it's still not the beaches of Florida. You know, it's it's muddy and yeah. brown yeah. in the wintertime and you know, yes there's New Orleans, but you know, even the novelty of that wears off at some point. And so if Louisiana's not fishing the way that you were sold on it, there's not a whole lot to do if you're not fishing. You know, and there's definitely not a whole lot to look at if it's not happening. And so, you know, I think what, what's sort of happening as far as sustainability goes is that people are being disappointed because expectations were so high yeah. from all of the years of videos and articles and all those things that even though Louisiana is still a better red fishery than most places, it's not Louisiana in the, yeah. in the historical sense. And so people are starting to lose interest in going to a technical fishery that was sold as the first experience you could have.
1: Yeah. I I can completely relate to that. Yeah.
0: And that's, and that's basically where we are right now is that, you know, it's still better than most places on any given day, but it's not what people were sold. And so now what you're having is that not only is there an influx of, of customers who are coming in with unrealistic expectations, but because the competition has gotten so steep, people are willing to basically feed into those expectations in order to get people on their boat. And it's not a it's not a sustainable delivery system anymore. You know, it's not something that you can achieve if you're promising what was achievable ten years ago.
1: Yeah, it's it, just it, not
0: the way it is.
1: That's you know, and I I think about that with like in in the fisheries that we guide here in the in Northern California for stripers, and it's I mean, y- your timeline could probably mirror mine with that, in that you know, um, it's blown up like. You know, people have seen some of the biggest stripers ever caught with a fly rod over the last couple of years come out of our fisheries and um, the gear worlds here. The conventional bass anglers have showed up and it's, you know, I get phone calls of guys where the first thing they want to they say is they want to catch a big striper. And it's like, well, you know, I, I don't want to take you with those expectations because that's not that's not a fun day, first of all. You know what I mean, and and your comment, like you said earlier, begin is that there's so much other cool stuff outside the boat that I want you to appreciate besides that one big fish. You know, uh, people coming in with unrealistic expectations is just—it's a horrible way to have to guide. You know,
0: well, so, it—it makes it almost impossible to get those five-star reviews <laughs> that we talked
1: about earlier.
0: Absolutely, yeah. You know, not that, not that it's all about the review, but for me, what it has always been, and this is something that whether you love it or hate it, you have to respect about me, is that customer satisfaction is paramount.
2: Absolutely. I don't
0: care about anything else. I don't care about anything else. And people, some of them love me for it and some of them hate me. Not customers, but other guys. And that If we're on a group trip, I tell people, manage expectations to the nth degree before the trip ever starts so that when someone shows up here... They understand what they're getting into. And that means whether it's big fish, small fish, whatever, all of those things come with a set of skill sets that you have to have. All of them come with a set of expectations that you need to have. And all of them will have results based on all of those things. Yeah. And to me, it's, it's your job as a guide to make sure that no matter what they've been watching, no matter what they've been seeing, no matter what they've gotten themselves all frothy about, that they understand what it is that they can expect based on you, ba- based on your best educated guess, yeah. And so for me, what I've done is, you know, some people even consider me negative at times because I'm the classic underseller.
1: Oh, like, I, I, I agree with that 100. And it, <laughs> it, any guy that is listening that's starting out, I would say undersell, undersell, undersell.
0: <laughs> here, here if, we, if these are for guys who are starting out, this is the best bit of advice I will ever give you. Anyone can be a good guide when the fishing is good. Oh, yeah. But real guides are the guys whose customers leave the boat with a smile having never caught a fish. Yeah. That is the best information you will ever get. If you want to be a successful guide, and I consider myself to be successful at this point after almost 10 years and guide of the year and all those things, the thing that has made me the guide of the year is not catching a bunch of fish. It's knowing how to appease people when you're not catching fish. Totally. It's being educated about your fishery because people want to know stuff.
2: Oh, I mean, absolutely. I
0: get more questions about what that is, whatever that is. You know, I get more questions about what plan is that? <laughs> what is that? You know, what eats oysters? What is, what's yeah. this water doing? Why does it look like this? What's yeah. this bird? You know, what's, what's that animal? You know, I get, those are the questions that you're fielding on a regular basis. You know, how does the shrimp fishery tie into this? What happened with the oil spill? How was hurricane Katrina affected? And all, you know, what, how does that affect this place? You know, if you, don't learn those things. You are doing your customer a disservice and you need to know everything you can possibly know about your fishery so that the times when you aren't catching fish, which spoiler alert, it's a lot of the time.
1: <laughs> it's a whole hell of a lot of the time. Yeah,
0: <laughs> You need to make sure that you're able to entertain the hell out of those people so that when they get off the boat, they say to themselves, I laugh and I learned something. Yeah. And that's all
1: you can do. Yeah. That's all you can do. Oh and it's that, great advice especially in a fishery like where you're at that is such a foreign world for most people. You know what I mean like uh, I mean I don't And
0: get- and there's a lot of coverage of the state unfortunately that a lot of it's stereotypical and and a lot of it doesn't really te- you know touch on what's real in Louisiana. You know there's there's a whole lot beyond swamp people. You know there's a whole <laughs> lot beyond all the things that you see on television that portray us as a bunch of bib overall rare wearing cajuns you know like there's there's something those people to are there though to,
1: let's be real oh they exist <laughs>
0: they exist don't get me wrong they uh, did not have to look far to find those people for <laughs> swamp people i'm not saying that they're rare i'm just saying <laughs> that it's not everybody you know and and so being able to being able to have candid conversations with people about the fishery that they're experiencing around them yeah and being able to fill those voids with real, good, solid educational information is paramount in my experience. Like that's what people want to know. Yeah. Because in that end, you need to be able to convey how to fix their cast from the back of the boat and you better be able to do it in one or two moves. Because if you're going to just break down their entire cast on the day of the fishing, you're ruining that person's experience. Yeah. Like you need to be able to say one or two things very quickly that they can do while you're standing on the back of that boat so that they can make just enough improvement to catch a fish. That's that's ultimately what they want. They want to be just good enough to catch a fish if they're novice enough coming into this thing. And the last thing you want to do is break down their entire cast the day of the fishing. Event. Because well, that's an that's, interesting
1: point because I mean you being a flats guide logistically you know I in, where we're at here in California you know I mean most of our fishing's either done out of a drift boat or a jet boat. And a lot of the fishing that we do, clients do on their own as well, right? Like guys that book trout trips go trout fishing on their own, more so than they do guided trips probably. And, but a flats guide, like everyone that gets on your boat, the chances of them, like you're probably looking at like single digit days experience doing that. You know what I mean? Like you are taking, you're taking people that are like, I've done it once or twice. Like if I hear that when I get into my boat in the morning of I've done this once or twice, like I'm like, oh, damn it. You know, how did I not screen this email and pass it on to the young kid, you know? Like how did this get past the radar? But for you, how does that work? I mean, like I I've probably I mean, I've done a lot of fishing, I've fished my whole life. I mean, I probably maybe 20 days on a flats boat at most like, I mean, and that's a lot for probably what you see.
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. To have someone like you would be a a dream come true. Um, Well, thank you. You know, it's, it's just one of those things that, you know, you learn early on that you're going to experience that on a pretty regular basis. And so you, you know, you kind of add to your, your quiver, as you said earlier, and you, you find ways to develop people quickly from the back of the boat. And and sometimes you have to get down and you you have to grab their arm and, and help them if they're really kind of struggling with the mechanics of the cast. Yeah. But the other thing that you can do, and this is just as important, is have those conversations before they ever get on the boat. Yeah. And determine what their skill level is and then point them in the right direction to get as good as possible before they get there. Yeah. And so for me, you know, what I've done is I've created a couple videos from my website that talk about Louisiana specific practice techniques that will help them in their journey, you know? And, yeah. and because that's, that's the thing is that not only are we flat fishing, which is not something that people typically do, yeah, but now you're also in a place where you have to make short, accurate casts, Yeah. And I tell people the hardest cast in Louisiana is the eight foot cast with your nine foot rod. Yeah. Like you show me how you're going to do that because most people aren't used to that. Most people you know, because of the mechanics of a fly rod, having to load that rod with the weight of the line, yeah. having to cast a fly in the leader is not something you're typically doing. With a but it's know, that 20 pound redfish
1: closing in on it, you know? <laughs> exactly. Yeah.
0: Exactly. But it is something that you will do a lot in the state of Louisiana. So, um, you know, a lot of it has to do with preparation prior to the trip as much as you possibly can. Yeah. And then the second part of it is that, you know, humans are humans and they're going to be a lot of the same mistakes over and over. And so when you get enough days on the water within two seconds, you can look at someone's cast and say, okay, you need to do this. and this. Yeah. And yeah. a lot of it is very simple mechanics. You know, yeah. I, I had a guy just the other day who, you know, had fished a little bit in fresh water, but it became pretty evident pretty quick that, you know, as far as the mechanics of casting with an eight or a nine or a 10 weight, it just wasn't there. And so we, we stopped and we broke it down and I said, okay, here you go. I need you to just do these two things, you know, pause on the back a little higher and, you know, do something else. I don't remember what it was, but you know, by doing that he got to where he could feel the rod load. And then once he had that sort of aha moment, it was just a matter then of, you know, him remembering to put those things in place. And that way, when you do see a fish and that opportunity does come, all you're doing is saying two things. Remember, falls on the back. Remember, put down with yeah. more force. You know, it's just two things. It's not, okay, remember that you need to be on the same plane. <laughs> with casting. Make sure you're double hauling just right. You know, make sure your left eye is closed slightly. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like there's, the, and that the fish is now in the next
1: county. <laughs>
0: <it>. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. You know, and that's, those are the little things that I try to do for people in the beginning, you know, the trip in order to to try and get them to a point where they're at least, you know, functional. And yeah. sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And the problem is that, you know, when we're talking about this whole sort of evolution of, of fly fishing and, and fisheries, is that what's happened in Louisiana is that as the fishery has become more technical... The clients have become more inexperienced. Yeah, because the internet has created the tomorrow's you know Christmas Island guy.
2: Yeah, absolutely. you know, like I
0: never fly fish in my life. I watched six YouTube videos. I'm ready to go to Christmas Island. It's like, yeah. no, you're not. It's like, no. no, you're not. But he's going to go, or she.
2: Yeah, you
0: know, they're going to go. They're going to go do their thing. You know, and that's and that's just as a guide. You have to adjust to those sorts of things and realize that used to be in the fall and winter. I got guys who were destination fishermen like they were the guys who traveled around the world they had been flat fishing a number of times they were solid and they would book five days yeah. maybe even six yeah now i get the guy that's like i decided to take up fly fishing you know three weeks ago and i want to book you know how many days should i book and then you start having the conversation You know, okay with weather i want to go three days at least yeah. you know and it's just it's a different fisherman and and that's fine you know it's something you have to adjust to if you're going to survive But it's just a very different world than than what, you know, you and I both kind of started. And even though I'm only 10 years in, but still, it's it's a different world than what it was.
1: Uh, It's an incredibly hard job. I mean, I was thinking about it as I was preparing for the show, you know, about like what I get in my boat, you know what I mean? And what my guys come with and the skill sets that they bring and how I can be kind of hoity-toity about, you know. Well, I don't want to guide a guy that's never done it, and you know, I'm, I'm I can pass those guys on to the younger guides and stuff like that. But with a flats guide, it's like, I mean, even if I get in a flats boat, I'm gonna it's gonna take me a while to figure it out. You know, I don't throw an you know eight or nine weight with a floating line at you know dinner plates very often. You know, so it's a uh, it, it's it's an interesting and challenging way to have to function as a guide because it. Like you said, that most people do not have realistic expectations based on their skill set. And that's an incredibly challenging position to be in, you know. So it,
0: it is. Um and you know, actually you saying that reminded me of the second best piece of advice that I'll ever give a new guide coming in, especially into the saltwater world. Yeah. Do not let the success of your customer dictate your happiness. It's all good. you can uh, do. That's good for
1: everyone, man.
0: Yes, yeah. all you can do as a guide is show people fish, like that's it, yeah, beyond that, I couldn't make him practice anymore before they came. I couldn't make them better at the moment. I couldn't yeah. make the fish eat, I couldn't make them not break the the line. I couldn't you know there's all these things I can't control. What I can control is the expectations before we start and then the expectations after we're done, because you can take someone who had an amazing day catching one fish and destroy that if you tell them that it wasn't a good day. Totally, And that is not your right as a fisherman, as a guy. You have no right to change someone's perspective simply because you feel a certain way. And
1: that's that's, the other thing is that that's that's the
0: kind of stuff. That's the kind of stuff that people just don't get. Like they just don't get it. I had a guy, I'll never forget this story. I had a guy, two guys actually came and fished and we had an amazing day. I mean, amazing. I bet we caught almost 20 fish over 20 pounds.
1: It was insane. It was stupid. Yeah.
0: And we got up to the ramp and we were loading the boat and another guide's client came over to my boat and we're talking to my guy and said, how was your day? And they were chit chatting and they were being cordial and just saying hello. And he asked me, the guy, the other guys, guides, guys asked me, how was your day? I said, man, we had a great time. That was it. Yeah. We got in the car, we drove away. And my guy goes, man, we had an amazing day. Why didn't you tell him what we did? And I said, because what if they caught less than us? And I destroyed that guy's good day because of what we did. I said, "Or what if you caught more than us, and then you feel like shit?" Because yeah,
1: it's a, that's a no. Yeah, that's a no-win situation. I always, you yeah. know, I, I know the I know the conversation. I mean, we all go through that, no matter if you're a you know a walk and Wade, you know, trout guide or a salt like the boat ramp conversation of clients and guides. Right? Like, I know I'm just good. How was your day? Great. Good day. Good day. You know, just leave it at that.
0: Yeah. yeah. Like why, why get into, you know, the pissing contest of saying, oh, you know, I caught this many fish and it was so amazing. I mean, all you're doing is just alienating half the people you're talking to because either yeah. they had a you know worse day than you did and then you're making them feel like shit or they had a better day than you did. And they're like, well, eh, screw that guy. You know, like I, it's just one of those things where there, there's no benefit to bragging you know one way or the other it's it's about humility it's about being humble it's about being there for your clients and that's start to finish and that's you know the end of the day is just as important as the beginning and you have to remember that as a guide it's, yeah. it's from the time you pick them up to the time you drop them off you have to be a guide and part of that is managing expectations on the front and the back end and that's you know those are the things that you want to stay in this business for a long time you better learn how to do that
1: because absolutely.
0: otherwise you're going to get chewed up and spit out because you're absolutely <laughs> right. This yeah. is not a glorified job. This is not easy.
1: No, oh, There's God, nothing no. easy about this. You no. know, this
0: idea that all oh, you do is fish all day. No, all I do is stare at dude's asses all day <laughs> because I stand <laughs> on the back of the boat and push people around. Like that's I my
1: push job. pole all day and stare at asses.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. Like I look at, I look at the back of people all day. Like, I try to look around them. Sometimes I have to duck because they're casting <laughs> into me. I've got all kinds of things I get to do. Fishing is not one.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That, that it, it's amazing. Oh, your husband goes fishing for a living. No. No, no, no. No. No, no, no. 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 Yeah.
0: Your husband babysits adults for a living.
1: <laughs> in a confined he's space. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah.
0: That's the other thing too. It's like that, that's the other thing, is like I keep coming up with like new advice for guides you're going to be on a boat with somebody for up to eight hours. Yeah. You. When's the last time you spent eight hours with any person, you know, much that someone you don't know. Totally. Like that's the other thing. It's like, how often are you, I, I can barely spend eight hours with my wife and I love her a lot. <laughs> We've been married for like 13 or 14 years. I don't even know. A yeah. long time. <laughs> long and,
1: enough that it don't I matter.
0: <laughs> right. But you're now spending eight hours with perfect strangers. Yeah. You know, like, you better understand how to, you know, adjust and adapt to every situation because some people it's going to be yes, sir. And no, sir, no ma'am. You're like, that's how I am certain days. Yep. And other days it's going to be like the boys around the campfire talking nonsense. So you, you better have multiple speeds too, because you know, the idea that you can just go in full bore one way or the other, it's not going to work. You know, you're only going to appeal to a very small amount of people because People do not want you telling the dirty jokes. That some people <laughs> definitely, a lot of people definitely don't want you cursing on them. No,
1: you know,
0: one way or the
2: other.
1: No, your reviews were so, very polite, though. I, I remember one said you were one of the most polite and calm saltwater guide the guy had ever been with. And <laughs> hey, you did some, you did some deep research. I appreciate. Oh, dude, that. I was like, wait, one hundred and thirty some people have something to say about Lucas. I got to read this. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, you know, the crazy thing about me is that off the boat, I'm not the most patient person in the world. I really am not. You know, there's there's definitely flaws that I have, and I'm aware of them. Doesn't mean I'm fixing them. I'm just aware of them. <laughs> but on the boat, for some reason, I have like the patience of Job, man. I don't know why. I just, I don't
1: That's know funny, why. Because I, I read that post and I'm like, oh, I, I, I don't, I think I do not, you know, my you know, because we sit in our board meetings together, and you know, you you, you are—I wouldn't say you're not patient, but you are—you're not patient. <laughs> like right. you, you, you got it. You got a speed with which you like to maintain <laughs> and views yeah. with which you hold very strong, and I love yeah. that. <laughs> but
0: yeah, there's there's definitely a, there's definitely a way about me, and and typically it's you know I've gotten a lot better as my boardroom demeanor over the years, but. It, I still am pretty abrasive might be a strong word, but there are times where, you know, I'm going to say what I want to say and, and I try to be polite about it, but there is definitely no sort of, you know, you know, making it, making whether or not I, I mean it, you know, like, people yeah, are oh, like oh, yeah, sure. he, he means what he says, you know, but, <laughs> but on the boat, for some reason I'm completely different. It's a completely different demeanor. And maybe, maybe it's the transformation that I had, you know, going from, native louisiana who kill everything to fly fishing guy i don't know i I don't know what it is maybe there's a a certain amount of profound calmness that has overcome me you know on the boat but i definitely am a different person on the boat i i I think there's times that my wife wishes i'd back the boat into the living room so i can stand on it when we talk
1: (laughs) Uh, man i i i would i would definitely like i have to you know i definitely go into a different mindset in the boat because uh, patience is mandatory it's not a mandatory yeah it's you don't you don't get to lose your patience in the boat like straight up. i mean it's
0: not it's not fair to the person who you're with you know like you're these people are legitimately paying you you know for your time and their experience is paramount to your experience i mean you are you signed up for that whenever you got into the service industry that's what you signed up for and so you know you being upset with them because they didn't make a good cast, that's not going to make them a better caster. Yeah. You yelling and screaming because they missed the fish, of course they know they missed the fish. They didn't catch the fish.
1: Yes. Like the result they is all the evidence They feel just you as need. bad. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like the result is all the evidence you need. You don't have to tell them they messed up. Like, of <laughs> course they know. What you can do is give them constructive criticism as to why they messed up and yeah. maybe potentially make them, you know, better for the next time. Yeah, but you know beyond that it's not your right to treat somebody any differently than you would any other person or how you want to be treated you know to get a little biblical with it you know like i i believe that you should treat people like you want to be treated and i don't want someone standing behind me yelling at me like i don't want that (laughs) well it's funny
1: because saltwater guides have that reputation you know you always hear they do they they have that reputation of just (laughs) laying into people you know
0: laying in i mean and it's you know from my experience with the people who I deal with, it, it, it happens. There's no doubt. Yeah. And I, I have zero tolerance for it, you know, as far as the people who I work with, um, you know, I, I just, it's not something that I'm okay with because I would never, ever want to be treated that way. And, you know, the thing that we have in this, in this world is your reputation as a guy. That's it. That's all you got. You destroy that. It's over. So I will not let someone else destroy it for me. I can assure you. And I have been over more than backwards a time or two having, you know, trying my best to, you know, satiate somebody who was treated unfairly on a boat. Yeah. And I, and I felt more than happy to do it because I feel like, again, you know, this is, this is their experience. This is what they are paying for. And you don't have any right to treat them any other way than you would someone else. And that's, that's just the long and the short of it. But you know i'll get off my horse now I'll no no man <laughs> i i
1: think it's great because i mean a lot of people listen to the podcast i'm sure a lot of people listen to this one it, it um and this kind of leads me into a couple of things at the end i wanted to touch on like is um guiding is such a regional culture you know as much as we all know each other and we're all connected on social media you know i mean i'm sure you're just like me you know guides from all over the country you know, and consider some of them dear friends, but how the job is actually done is incredibly regional, you know, and what passes for okay. And what is, you know, everything from if you bring lunch or you don't, or how you do it is very, very regional. So it's, it's interesting to talk about, you know, the saltwater culture, because that's a, that's a, thing not everyone in our area gets to experience you know there's not a a saltwater fishery out here you know there's some in san diego but that you know for a lot of our listeners they don't they don't do that so it's it's interesting to hear you know um and that kind of leads me in you know i was i was thinking of funny things to ask you know up up where we're at up until covid all fly fishing guys like if you didn't bring lunch for your clients like you were like that was not okay And I know, (laughs) I know Flats guides and I love this. And and because of COVID, I have completely taken the opportunity to be like, you provide your own lunch because who knows what, you know, I I don't want to get you sick, but realistically, I just just don't want to have to go to the deli in the morning. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Flack, do do your clients bring you lunch? Is that how it works? You know, In the
0: the past, it used to be like that. Um, In the past, you know, when I first started, we would meet for breakfast and customers would pay for breakfast
1: Wow. lunch
0: that was pretty standard um,
1: wow so you I send them like a I, like a forward dietary requirement you're like i like yeah. this this you know like you're the rock band showing up to the club you're like i want only <laughs> right, green, green skittles <laughs> yeah only green right, skittles
2: yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no no um, you know like i said we would meet for for breakfast and so you know you would just be hanging out there at the at the breakfast place and yeah. grab your breakfast and your lunch to go and then You know, typically clients picked up the bill. I mean, that was ninety nine percent of the time.
1: That's got to be an awkward conversation with the one percent that you are like, "Oh, hey." No,
0: (laughs) no, I would never. I don't. I don't have that conversation. I never would. There's been a few that you know that that wasn't what they were used to, and so hell, I even had people who were like, "Okay, you're picking up the bill, right?" Because they're used to fishing other places where you know you provide lunch as the guide. And yeah. those people, I would pay for their lunch. You know, I mean, I got, I would never, again, you know, customer service is paramount to me.
2: Totally, so totally. Whatever,
0: whatever it took, you know, I mean, yeah. I i definitely um, may, like, think about them slightly different, you know, but again, <laughs> it's not because they knew any better, you know, it wasn't yeah. like they did it maliciously. So, totally. Um, but then I got to where I stopped meeting people for breakfast and lunch and just started meeting them at the ramp. And then I would just have them pick up their own, you know, lunch. And then I would pick up my own. Yeah. And despite my, my waist size continually growing at (laughs) the time, I justified it by saying like, okay, if I don't meet them for breakfast and lunch, I won't eat a shrimp po' boy every day. (laughs) And I won't (laughs) have, you know, like the four course breakfast with the steak and eggs. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like I won't be doing all of that. and It'll be better. And while I don't consume as much food on the boat as I used to, I still continually get fatter. So um apparently the choices are being made after the trip. But yeah, um, yeah so I just, I stopped doing that. And so now, you know, a lot of other people did the same thing. And, yeah. you know, cause like you said, it's the regional. And it's so super regional. Sort of, and so that culture sort of, it starts to kind of like permeate throughout even the region. And so yeah. when, when I first started guiding, we picked up people in the, in the city of New Orleans. So Wow. Like You legitimately drove into the city, out of your way, some of us, picked people up, drove them down to the breakfast place, eat breakfast and lunch, them down to the to the ramp, fish, drive them all the way back to the city in the evenings, which was an hour plus added back onto your day.
1: That's insane. And so when
0: I lived in Baton Rouge, I mean, you're talking like 14 and a half hour days. Yeah. Because I would yeah. leave my house at 4, 4.30, get to the city around 6, Pick up the customers, do the whole rigmarole, get back to the city around four four thirty, then not get home until after six.
1: Yeah, so, that's I mean, not sustainable. It was,
0: <laughs> no, no, there was no way. I mean, yeah. you talk about burnout. I mean, it yeah. happened like two days in. Yeah, I mean, it was it was impossible to have fourteen or fifteen or sixteen days in a row like that. Like there was just no way. Yeah, and um, and so then I remember the first guy decided to stop picking people up from the from the city. And It was the most liberating thing in the world because, I mean, the reality is, is that you know we're probably not supposed to be legally picking people up. You know, as far as like having a CDL or something because I mean you're you're driving a paying customer somewhere. You know. I yeah, mean, I, I don't.
1: I don't want you know Bissell listening to this because that's probably not covered under our insurance policy. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah.
0: Probably shouldn't even have mentioned that. Yeah, but, that does um, happen. Yeah. No, no, no one ever picks anybody. So. <laughs> So, yeah, that, that's, that's been the change. And then, so like I said, now we've gone to where most people don't pick up clients, you know, even from, like, a certain spot or meet for breakfast. Yeah. And it's, just, it's changed, you know, over the years. And for me, it's added, like, years back onto my life, not only because I eat slightly healthier, but also because you're not fighting that traffic both ways. I live on the east side of New Orleans now. And so I would legitimately have to pass the uh, exit off the interstate to get to the fishing spot, to go to the city, to then drive through the city.
1: Oh yeah. You know, and that's, I, I can't There's it's, probably not light yeah. traffic either.
0: Not in the evenings. No. no, there was no such thing as light traffic in New Orleans Yeah. just, you know, the city was not designed the right way and lighting, you know, lights never seemed to work and not yeah. uh, work properly and yeah, it was it was a nightmare. I mean, I I definitely don't uh, miss those days.
1: Yeah, it's funny you say it, cuz I I I I went through this thing last summer where or no it was actually a couple of years ago where i started i was like okay i'm gonna start making my own lunches you know because i don't want to have to go to the deli in the morning and deal with all picking up sandwiches and if i make my own lunches i'll eat healthier and less you know what i mean so i'd like yep, i was super focused on like not eating you know a whole bag of kettle chips and a snickers bar and a giant deli sandwich <laughs> every day and what i realized is exactly what you like it I didn't, I I was a rock star at lunch and breakfast. But then, man, when I got home, it was like pull up to the hog trough. I
2: mean, <laughs> oh, yeah. I just
1: oh, yeah. hammered it. <laughs> <Yeah, of> my- <laughs> I was like, Mama, you, dinner better be ready when I come home because <laughs> yeah, daddy's but, hungry.
0: I mean, it's a lot. I mean, it's, it's a lot of burning calories on on those gigs. You know what I mean? You're out there doing your thing, you're working the whole time, you're standing. I mean, for me, like, we literally stand in one spot all day. Which well, it, is, let's be
1: very clear. You work really hard pushing a pole. Like, I run a trolling motor. Like, I mean.
0: Well, okay. I mean, yeah. so, so maybe it's a little bit easier, but you're still standing, <laughs> most likely. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And push polling, you know, this is something that's definitely evolved for me over the years. I've gotten a lot better at push polling, not because I can move the boat any better. Yeah. I've just gotten a lot smarter about it. Like, yeah. now I know every bank that there needs to know where on a certain wind, the wind will be behind me and I can still have the sun to my back. Yeah. Like, I, I know exactly where I need to be in order to make sure that I'm not working too hard. Man, when I first started guiding, I would pull 30, 40, 50 yards directly into a 20-knot <laughs> wind trying to get somewhere. <laughs> now I'm like, we're going to just go ahead and idle in on the motor. I'm like, it'll be fine.
2: <laughs> it's all going to work <laughs> yeah, out. <laughs> yeah,
0: they, those fish, get, they, they'll get scared for a little while, but they'll come back. I mean, yeah, I've gotten... I've gotten a totally different mindset because I mean, you know, repetitive injury, you know, repetitive motion injuries are real and it got to where, you know, my shoulder was killing me all the time. I got this like funny neck crick thing going and it just was like, man, this is not sustainable. Like I can't do this. My body's not going to hold up. You know, every guy who's doing this, like the pulling stuff for 20 years, has got knee replacements, shoulder replacements. I mean, like just all sorts of stuff happening because you're standing in one spot all day, which is really hard on your body. Yeah. And then you're pushing a boat around doing the same motion over and over and over and over hours a day. You know, it's just, it gets, it gets pretty rough on you for sure.
1: Oh, absolutely. Well, so I, I I had this long list of questions here about college football as well. If we ran out of things to talk about. So I'm going to, I'm going to throw you one college football question and let you tell everybody how to, how they can get a hold of you and check out some of the stuff you're doing. But, I have this long list here, but is Joe Burrow going to be a good NFL quarterback? <laughs> that was the first one.
0: I know, I know guiding. I know fishing. I don't know. You not, you're not oh,
1: be. you watched, you watched the national title game on a laptop during a board meeting. You, you're right. You, you're I mean, as big a yeah. fan as I am.
0: I am definitely, a, I'm definitely an LSU football fan. There's no doubt. <laughs> I mean, Based on, based on the experience that I have with Joe Burrow and watching him lead yeah. what was arguably the best college offense of all time, um, <laughs> I would say, and those aren't my words, those are other people's words. <laughs> um, I, would, I would say that if he has a good offensive line in front of him, he will be a good NFL quarterback. I mean, okay. that's okay. what it really boils down to. I mean, the guy has the skills to do it, He's got the brain to do it.
1: He seems I mean, incredibly intelligent. The times I've heard him interviewed, you know. The,
0: well, the football intelligence too. I mean, his dad yeah. was a coach for you fifty know, some odd years it seemed, or something like that. Yeah. Um, you know, or at least in football for fifty some odd years. I mean, he has the know how, and at least listening to the coaches here at LSU talk about him, he was instrumental in developing a lot of the offense that was played last year. I mean, he was the one who understood what needed to happen. He helped the wide receivers practice. He helped running back practice. I mean, it sounds like he understands the game of football like the greats do. Yeah. You know, your Drew Breezes, your yeah, Brady's, your Manning's. You know, and so with that kind of knowledge and experience in the game of football, and really, that's not coachable. That's just something you learn on your own. Well, it and that translates, like
1: got- right? Like that goes from absolutely. college to pro. Yeah.
0: And, and, it, and apparently... He's extremely driven, like to a point where he's almost like Tiger Woods used to be, where you yes. thought he was an asshole because he never talked to you, yes. but in reality, he was just in the zone and he yeah. needed to be there. Yeah. And so it sounds like, based on those things, that he has an opportunity to be a great quarterback in the NFL. I think a lot of it is going to depend on the team around him. I mean, like anybody yeah. else, he's only one man, and you know, one of the main reasons that LSU's team was what they were last year was because of all the parts. Yeah, I mean, all of those things had to be there. You know, you don't have the same team without, you know, uh, Justin Jefferson or without you know some of the other guys yeah. around him who, who were having the years that they had.
1: Who is following up Joe Burrow? Who's going to be the QB this year?
0: A uh, young kid, younger kid named uh, Miles, Brennan. Miles
1: um,
0: Brennan. He's he's been on the team for a couple of years now. Um, seems like he's intelligent as well. You know, he yeah. hasn't had a ton of. Of experience or opportunity just based on you know burrow coming in and kind of taking the team and doing what he was doing yeah but it sounds like you know again this is just stuff i'm hearing i mean i don't know anything but um
1: i'm sure you're like like me you read everything
0: (laughs) i try i try to read some things i try not to get too deep into it you know how it is man i know you can destroy something good if you read everybody's opinion about it (laughs)
1: that's true that's true
2: Um, i hear you
0: but it sounds like he is intelligent and it sounds like he's got a drive it sounds like he definitely got the arm i mean he was a he was a pretty high recruit
1: yeah. coming out of high
0: school is he a um, big kid or a, a
1: is he a big kid
0: he's not as he doesn't seem quite as big as burrow yeah in the sense that burrow was pretty stocky yeah I, he's definitely i don't think he's going to be as tough as burrow i mean burrow was you know
1: just oh dude thief. he was an animal like he, yeah
0: yeah hit him hard and he just comes back harder you yeah. know and that just that kind of heart is is again, you know, it's just not every day you see that kind of stuff. So,
1: um,
0: it sounds like, you know, people are are feeling pretty confident about this year's team. And so, you know, hopefully he got enough experience under, under Burrow and, you know, hopefully we maintained enough talent around him to do, you know, to be decent. I I don't expect us to go win another national championship, at least not in the way that we did this year, past year, but, um, You know, but then again, you know that team was just unbelievable.
2: So, you know,
0: expectations are once again, you know, managing expectations. Yeah, I'm I'm trying to just be realistic about what we have. I think Brennan's going to be a good quarterback, but he's. I just don't know that he's going to be Burrow.
1: Yeah, and I mean that I was looking at your guys' schedule, and I mean you got you got three games that are like probably cupcake games, but that's it. I mean that the schedule's tough. You know, that's
0: that's but then that seems to be what LSU does every year. It's like yeah. we just take on, like, okay, you got we want the best of every conference. It seems yeah. Like, you know, other teams have no problem doing like five games that are kind of so so. No, We're I like, had totally
1: oh, wanted to give you a bunch of crap for a soft SEC schedule where you played like two games that really meant something, like, you know, Alabama or somebody. But like <laughs> right. I pulled up your schedule and I'm like, That's legit. You
2: know, <laughs> no, I can't can do that now.
1: <laughs> and then last year
0: was even more legit, which was really kind of where that whole, you know, best team and their best offense in college football sort of comes from. Because, yeah. you know, you just, no one's played that kind of schedule, that many top tens, beat them all yeah. and beat Alabama, who has, you know, been indestructible more or less other than um, Clemson, who's gotten their number a few times.
1: But yeah,
0: um, yeah so yeah.
1: Well, I just hope there's a season I, I bought my Clemson actually plays at Notre Dame this year and I'm going back for that game and a couple other ones, but, um, there you go. I really hope Notre Dame can knock Clemson off and, and in the end, make your road a little easier, hopefully, you know, <laughs> <laughs> cause let's be we'll real. Be, yeah. yeah. Let's. I mean, Notre Dame, if they get to, if they get in the playoffs, I'm like, sweet, good season, you know? Uh, yeah. They just they they you know I I was uh, the Georgia game last year. I mean I thought they played well against Georgia, so I was happy with that. That was the first time I'd seen them go up against an SEC team and be like, "Okay, we match up." You know, right? I felt good about that. So that was that was a that was an accomplishment on the uh, on our end. The
0: only the only really experience I had with Notre Dame and SEC was Jamarcus Russell and Brady Quinn. Uh, don't don't even, even bring up don't
1: yeah don't even bring that up the, the, the don't, 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 don't even bring that do stop, stop right there stop right there the, the, like sorry the, yeah the, the dismantling of Notre Dame in the Sugar Bowl by
0: <laughs> I mean that game literally defined Jamarcus and Brady's career I mean absolutely now Jamarcus ended up being the worst number one pick of all time
1: and and but, I feel better because of that. You know what I mean, like that. I sleep better at night after. I mean, I in that game I had never seen a man throw a football that far. I mean, you're. No. Mar- I mean, he literally threw. I think an eighty-some-yard strike TD pass. Like, yeah,
0: Jamarcus De- 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 Russell, talent-wise, they claim it was one of the best that ever went to LSU. I mean, he could throw it through the center upright from midfield on his knee.
1: Yeah. Yeah, like he, he literally it, dismantled Notre Dame that game.
0: Yeah, I mean that game legitimately. So that was an '07. I know because my wife and I got married that year, uh-huh. and um, the like. I knew I was marrying the right person. Whenever we were, this is a true story. We were walking down the aisle after being married. We just said "I do." You know, we're going <laughs> down the aisle. Yeah, and my cousin is standing to the left as we're walking into the reception hall. Yeah, he's a huge LSU fan. My wife goes. Did Jamarcus go first in the draft? That's the first question she asked. <laughs> after, bum, bum, ba, dum, bum, bum. Like literally. So we get mar- we got married April twenty eighth two thousand seven <laughs> draft day a Saturday, and the first question she asked for my cousin is Did my boy Did go number, number one? one. <laughs> number one. And I'm like, Baby, I love you. I love <laughs> you so
1: much. <laughs> now let's go put all some all our money on the Raiders. <laughs>
0: That's it. <laughs> I'm betting against Pete
1: Rose. <laughs> oh, that's great. Well man, I I can talk college football I, for hours. So, um that's another reason I think you and me get along cuz out in the uh the the old Northern California college football is not probably what it is in the uh Southeastern Conference. So, it's good to have
0: Probably
1: it. not quite as much. No man, I tell you it's it uh I've been down to a few few times. is definitely on my bucket list. I want to see a game there. Um We were at the Georgia Notre Dame game last year, and it it was probably the most intense college football game I'd ever been to. Loudest. I mean, just there's something about watching SEC football. You know, I mean, I don't like Alabama and I don't like a lot of things about the SEC, but there is no more passionate and exciting place to be than an SEC football game on a Saturday afternoon. You know,
0: oh yeah, you got it. You definitely need to come to a night game at LSU. Um, I'm biased of course but, uh, but rightfully so
1: in. man you watch that when they fire that up at you know it's 5pm out here on a Saturday night football game I mean that place is rocking
0: rocking I mean I my wife really made me the LSU fan that I am because you know growing up here in Louisiana obviously I was an LSU fan you're yeah. kind of born into it but I you know I was working at LSU and my wife's like we need to go to a game because she went to LSU and uh, okay. I'm like Okay, I'm like okay, yeah, we can do that. We'll support like, the local team, <laughs> right? So we go, and at the time, the stadium only held like ninety two thousand people, and I say only because now it's like yeah. one hundred and two. Yeah, but I just I remember going in there and going, holy shit! Like, is this is yeah. this normal? Like, what? Like the hair on the back of my neck stood up. Oh yeah, just the the sound of. 92,000 people
1: out of their gourd. The same thing. <laughs> yeah, right. Yes,
0: yeah, just like some visceral like noise that <laughs> yeah.
1: was.
0: And I'm just like, "Oh my god, this is amazing." Yeah. So, yes, I will say that before you uh before you leave this earth, you need to see an LSU football game on a Saturday night in Baton Rouge. Oh,
1: there it's on my bucket list. It. It's um it, I would say it's probably one in two. You know, I really want to see, I have not, and I kick myself because they restarted it, but I want to see uh, a Michigan-Notre Dame game at the big house at Michigan, you know? I could see that, um, yeah. But I, I would say LSU's number two on that, just because yeah. it, it, it's such, it's always been storied. You know what I mean? It's not yeah. like they just came up on college football, or they just got good, or just got into the, like that place has been the place to see a college football game since I was watching college football in the like eighties, you know what I mean? As a kid.
0: Oh, no doubt. Yeah. So consistently voted in the top five, probably should be in the top two places in the country to watch college football games. Yeah. Um, And it's, it's the whole experience. I mean, there's just the camaraderie of tailgaters. Oh yeah. It's not like, you know, it's not like a parking lot that they tailgate. I mean, this is the entire campus of LSU. When we played Florida in 07, so same year, you know that Jamarcus went in the first round. Yeah. We played Florida and won in four overtime or no uh in one overtime but with four fourth downs. Like I remember tailgating for that game, there were 250,000 people on campus.
1: That's insane.
0: 250,000 yeah. the metro area of Baton Rouge is 250,000. <laughs>
1: So you doubled so, the population.
0: We double the population potentially in one day, and so just that experience alone, and everybody's cooking amazing food. It's not like oh yeah, this know, is the south. And yeah, this is the real deal. Like you got <laughs> this is not tailgate tailgating
1: in Palo Alto at a Stanford game. No, yeah.
0: no, no, no. This is not like eggs. You know, like uh, this is not uh, avocado toast. And <laughs> yeah like this is way to just nail Cushon the california
1: stereotype yeah, yeah
0: no, problem. no problem no problem um yeah this is like full kushan delay hogs yeah jambalaya gumbo you know the whole nine yards like depending on the game it is depending on what kind of food it'll be you know like there's very theme specific foods based on the game you know so like the florida game there are people cooking alligator you know for the arkansas game everybody's cooking a hog you know
1: mean, like it's I'm going to anything, <laughs> I'm gonna have to do some research. I got to pick my game based on the menu.
0: Based on the menu. Exactly. That's the way to do it. <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: Oh, well, hey, man, I really appreciate you coming on and doing this with me. This has been great. I no mean, problem. you and me can probably talk here for three or four hours, but easily. easily. <laughs> so um, why don't you let everyone know um, where they can reach you, how they can learn more about what you're doing down there in uh, Louisiana.
0: Yeah. So if, uh, if you wanted to visit my website, it's going to be LouisianaLowTide.com. You just head over there to the old, the old URL and uh, you'll see everything you need to see about me and you can book a trip there if you'd like. I've got my email and my phone number on there. And then if you want to learn more about the, uh, coastal restoration work that I'm doing through my nonprofit, you would go to anglersbetteringla.org.
1: Yeah, and and, could, and we'll uh, throw more. all that stuff up on our website and push it out as well. And, and and I know people from California. I know the AC Fly Fishing Crew who we've had on a few times on the NorCal podcast. Head out there and fish with you. I know those guys. They go out for about two weeks now. I think something.
0: Yeah, yeah. AC tends to bring in a group and then stays an the extra day for like a layover and then brings in
2: another group.
1: Yeah, yeah. So um, definitely, there's ways to get out there if you are from the uh, the Northern California. So. Well, hey, Lucas, thanks again, man. And I really appreciate it and uh, look forward to catching up again.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Hogan, I appreciate you having me on. I was honored to be the first one. You on are the fern, you, you, Venture.
1: Yes, this, you know, hopefully it all works out. And this, it's not the first and the last, but uh, you're, right. at well, least we got one in the know. can
0: exactly and i'm gonna be honest if it is the last one i'm not taking the blame for it because i feel like i'm pretty entertaining so
1: you know what i was like dude i'm swinging for the fences on the first one like who do i know that can talk more than me and that's lucas beset got him (laughs) all right buddy man i really appreciate it be well and i'll talk to you soon
0: yeah y'all too
1: Special thanks to our sponsors. Without them, this show would not be possible. Like this episode? Leave a review, grab some
0: gear, or become a Patreon supporter. Links are in this episode's description. This show
1: is part of the Barbless Podcast Network. For sponsorship inquiries or general questions, please email fishon at barbless.co. No better, fish better. This has been an AMP Audio production.